Let's do some maths. Let's say that you have images of 23 species of pollen and for each you need to make 50 measurements. How many measurements do you need to make overall? 1,150. Now what if you had to do that for 2,000 images? That's a whole lot of measurements. Well that's what today's researcher did to break down the pollen of Myrtaceae into three separate species. Have a listen and find out why. And welcome to Supplementary Information, the podcast that puts Carver's research under the microscope and pollinates your knowledge of Australia's cultural and natural heritage. I'm Dr. Nathan Jankowski, and I'm recording today on the lands of Darawal Nation. I'm Dr. Kelsey Long, and I am recording on Nunawal Country. Pollen is not just the stuff that gets up your nose during hay fever season, but an integral part of plant reproduction and an indestructible archive for past environments. In fact, much of what we understand about Australia's landscape thousands of years ago is actually based on studying pollen. For example, the lake muds of Wiriwa, that is Lake George outside of Canberra, contains pollen grains that are thought to be at least tens of millions of years old. But how do palynologists, people that study pollen, use pollen to recreate past climate and landscapes? How can you measure something so small? What is the process and why do we care about past environments anyway? My name is Matthew Adelehe and um, originally from Nigeria. I have a background in botany and then went on to explore forest biology and paleoecology, which is basically the study of past environment in my master's. And I'm also doing something similar for my PhD, where I use pollen grains to infer past environmental conditions especially vegetation changes. And then I also look at charcoal records to infer past fire activities. Uh, that's what I basically do. Pollen grains comes in different sizes and different shapes. And the beautiful thing is that uh, each plant species or family actually has a unique pollen type. All those characteristic features is what you can use to separate them from each other. But how do we make the leap from pollen grains preserved in mud to past vegetation reconstructions? And how confident can we be in those reconstructions when we are looking at such ancient pollen grains? These are just some of the questions we had when we spoke with today's guest, Mathieu Adelier, about his PhD work in the Bass Strait Islands and his passion for pollen. So we're, we're looking at pollen, but can you explain what actually is pollen for people that may not know? So pollen are basically the male sperm cells of plant, just as we have in humans. Uh, so when the male sperm cell fuses with the, with the female ovary, that's when the seed comes and then the seed can go into the soil and the plants can continue to persist in the landscape. And what are the sort of morphological features that distinguish them, if not species to species, at least, you know, family to family? Pollen grains comes in different sizes and different shapes, ranging from about 7 micrometer to 70 micrometer. And the beautiful thing is that uh, each plant species or family actually has a unique pollen type. So the, the shape ranges from ball to triangular. Some of them have spines, so you could use the shape as a whole to separate them, as well as the number of holes, which is called aperture, and also the size, the thickness, the designs in the wall. Some are smooth. You have some that looks like mesh, some like nets, and some 
with spines, like I said before. So all those characteristic features is what you can use to separate them from each other. So what is it about pollen that makes it so useful in terms of a past environment reconstruction sort of proxy? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, before I learned about paleoecology as a whole while I was an undergraduate, I used to know about archaeology. And then I keep wondering when an archaeologist talked to me then and says, oh, they saw past human remains, maybe like pot or some seed of plants, and they use that to reconstruct the environment. And I keep wondering, what if someone just puts that there randomly? You just dig in one site and you're using that to kind of infer what happened on the landscape. So I was like, no, I'm not convinced that you can actually use just one seed or a leaf of plants to say, okay, that plant was there in the past. So when I started looking at pollen under the microscope and I was like, oh, they are really produced, you know, abundant. And they are always there because plant flowers every year during the growing season. So they produce pollen. So whenever you dig the soil, they are always there in abundance. So that's actually a cool way to say, okay, plants were actually there in the past. So that's the cool thing about pollen. They are always there. They are producing high abundance and they are kind of resistant to harsh conditions. So millions of, of years, they are still there. And they are also unique to different plants. So all, of, all those characteristic features are kind of what makes pollen unique in reconstructing past environments. So if I was, if I was a, a little pollen grain floating through the atmosphere at the moment and I wanted to be preserved really, really well for like a scientist in 10,000 years to come and study me, where do I want to land in the landscape? What's going to keep me around in the most pristine condition possible? Uh, the most pristine condition is an anoxic environment where there is no oxygen. Because once there is a lot of oxygen, the pollen grain becomes oxidized. It gets swollen and it just bursts. Well, in a typical low oxygen condition, it's well preserved for thousands and millions of years. And that's why you basically find pollen grains in clay because it's like the grain size is very tiny. So it's very compacted. And you can also find pollen in peat because peat are very good in preserving not just pollen, but even animal carcass because of the low uh, oxygen environment. But once the grain size is big, maybe like sand, the pollen is not preserved. It, it can even get moved easily because it's not well trapped in the sediment. So it can get moved, broken, and then eventually bust. With the paper that we're discussing today, what what was the aim that you were setting out to try and achieve? What actually brought about the paper was when I started my PhD and I was trying to separate the different myritacy pollen and it was a little bit disastrous. Presently, myritacy pollen in Australia is basically separated into three major groups, which is eucalyptus, the paperback, and the tea tree. That's what you basically see in fossil record. Of course, there will be some other type, but those three types are very popular. And you can identify them maybe, you know, looking at a tree, like taxonomists can do that, but in pollen record, in the, in the broad sense, it's not possible to identify each of them in pollen record. And so I sat with the pollen, started exploring if I could separate them on my own using uh, my own morphological features. And I was able to separate uh, some of the eucalyptus types. Thought, okay, we should make this bigger. And then we did the same thing for the paperback and the, and the tea tree. Clearly, from the fact that there was so many issues surrounding like the old way of differentiating Motaceae pollen, 
how were people actually doing it and why, like, what sort of implications did that have for any of their paleoclimate reconstructions? Yeah, so because the Myrotaceae family is very large and a key plant species in Australia, so it means they actually inhabit different environments. So you can find some in dry areas, you can find some in wet areas, some in forest, some in shrubland. So presently, for example, the eucalyptus is just eucalyptus in fossil record or in paleoecological record. But if you're able to at least separate the eucalyptus into two types, maybe the, the wet one and the dry one, although there are overlaps, but you can at least say maybe this one came from the dry area and this came from the wet area. So you'll be able to better reconstruct the past environment instead of lumping them together. Just say, okay, there was eucalyptus vegetation, but then you can confidently say that there was probably wet eucalyptus vegetation or a dry eucalyptus vegetation. So the work that you've you've done on the Mertesi, you base that on some field work that you did down on the Bass Strait. Could you just describe for us what the vegetation currently looks like down in the Bass Strait? So the current vegetation of the Bass Strait is typical of uh, heathland and shrubland vegetation type. So heathland are basically vegetation dominated by shrubs lower than two meter high. Why shrubland? It's any shrub dominated vegetation that is more than two meter high. So you have a lot of uh, influence of uh, sea level and uh, and a lot of disturbance, the poor soil conditions, so which are more more uh, favorable for shrubby vegetation. That actually dominates the landscape presently, and we have patches of uh, eucalyptus forest and woodland here and there, some part of the highland. When you're going to go and sort of look at these past landscapes. How do you actually go about sampling the pollen, I suppose? Like, how do you, how do you find the pollen when you conduct these sorts of studies? So uh, when you go to the site, you get the equipment to drill the ground. It's more or less like a pipe just for you to get the sediment in layers. And each layer is just like a time capsule through time. The oldest being at the bottom and the youngest being at the top. So once you have the sediment core or the mud, I put it that way, then you can pick your sample, maybe from bottom to the top, depending on the interval you want. It could be every two centimeter, every, every one centimeter, and then you subject to some chemical treatment. So what the chemical treatment does is, first of all, remove larger particles as much as you can, maybe woody plant materials, stones, and so on and so forth. So once you get rid of that, you have sulfuric acid, the H2SO4 and acetic nitride in a certain ratio. So what that does is that it removes the covering of the pollen grain, like the jackets we call pollen kit. Because pollen grains are microscopic, you can't see them with the naked eye. So you need some extra fancy microscopy work to actually see them. So if you look at a raw pollen grain on the microscope, if you look at the grass type, you will just see something like an orange. You wouldn't really see the features that makes it a grass pollen. But once you remove the jacket, then you can see if there is any, you see the pattern, the hole, which is the aperture, the distinguishing features or that the diagnostic features, and it comes out really beautiful. That's when you can then start to identify or you start to count. Was there any sort of weird morphologies that came out in that work and how can you explain those? Because I assume, you know, the, the chemical pretreatment techniques can have an influence on morphology. How can you go about accounting for that? That's kind of unavoidable. So 
because we took the measurements and the images, some immediately after the chemical treatment and some probably a week later, and that's how we were able to detect that chemical treatments actually have influence on pollen. And we recommended that when you actually want to work on a site, maybe you get a surface sample of that site and during your field work, the flowers, the pollen that you actually collected from the modern plants, so you just process everything the same way. So if there's going to be any chemical influence or chemical alteration, it's gonna it's going to happen to everything both the modern and the and the fossil so you've sliced up all the all the core and you've extracted the pollen out how do you actually go about now comparing the pollen in your uh core to you know what the actual tree was or what the species were is there a there's a reference collection or something that we need to sort of verify these things against isn't there yeah absolutely the method we used for the bass trade, whereby we collected more than pollen from the island, or we actually collected some from the herbarium, but they are representative of what is actually growing on the island. So using that method of collecting what's growing on the island and then comparing it with a fossil record you collected from the exact region would be easier to separate maritase pollen type or gum tree family pollen type in different areas. So you might not be able to use what we've separated on the Bass Street in Queensland or maybe in Victoria, but you can apply the same method by collecting modern day pollen and for that particular region, compare what the modern plant pollen looks like to the ancient or the fossilized one. Although once you're going beyond 50,000 years ago, especially, then there is a possibility that the same plant that has that pollen today that you see in the fossil record might not be due to evolutionary changes. That's why the confidence is mostly around the last maybe 10 to 30,000 years. That's when you can confidently say, okay, it's actually that, that pollen. And that's why if you look at uh, pollen studies or paleoecological records of maybe 1 million years ago, 2 million years ago, they don't use the pollen species name or the plant species name. So for instance, if they find uh, the grass pollen in a 1 million year old record, they wouldn't call it grass. So they just give it a generic name, which is what the pollen looks like. So the grass pollen is round and it has one pore. So if they want to give it a name, they just say something like uh, monoporitis. So it has one pore, mono, so monoporitis, but I wouldn't call it grass because they are not sure if it's actually grass. But if it's still within the last 10 to 30,000 years or 40,000 years, we can just say it's grass. So when you actually went to visit sort of the Bass Strait Islands, what did a typical sort of day in the field look like to you? Ah, that's a big story because I don't like snakes, so... <laughs> I used to be someone like, I enjoy field work a lot than even lab work. So I was enjoying enjoying the field work, honestly. But when I started seeing snakes on the island, uh, it was really, it was really terrifying. Like during my stay on the island, I was actually dreaming about snakes. Like it was actually like a mini snake island. So with the, the really high resolution work that you've been and the rest of the team on this paper have been doing, what sort of measurements and how many measurements did you have to make in order to actually get down to that species level within Myrtaceae, within Eucalyptus or Leptospermum? Or... For each species that we actually looked at, we took about 50 measurements for each species and we looked at 23 species. That was a little bit of a cheeky question that Matthew took on notice. The answer is actually 1,150 measurements.
And we are, we also looked at about 2,000 images to compare and contrast because uh, looking at just maybe 100 polling or 50 polling, you might think, oh, I think this polling, they are all triangular in nature. But once you look about 500 images, you realize, okay, maybe sometimes they are not triangular. Sometimes they are a little bit rounded. You begin to see some overlap, some differences. And that's when you can say, okay, maybe it's not safe to say the polling belongs to this PC. Or rather say this PC has this polling type. Given a polling, a PC name is different from giving it a type name. So if I, if you call me Matthew Adelaide, it means you're sure that I came from the family of Adelaide. You are very sure that's my son name. But if maybe you saw different people that looks like me and you're like, you're not sure if it's me. You just say that's Matthew's type. All of them looks like Matthew. So it's safer that way. So based upon the results from the study that you've done that's sort of looked at all of these intricate morphometrics of the Matesis pollen, what has that enabled you to do in terms of understanding better the climate change or the landscape change that's happened in the Bass Strait Islands? With our study, we've been able to actually separate the eucalyptus into two broad groups. One of the major morphological feature that we actually found is the size, which was what we use in separating them into two types, the peppermint and the sifomaritos. So the peppermint type, they have small pollen, and the sifomaritos, they have kind of large pollen type, both in the fossil and the modern day distribution. Yeah. Instead of just saying the vegetation type with eucalyptus, you are able to also talk about maybe the productivity, for example, like the the symphomaritos are those ones that grow in tall forests and are fertile environments. And the peppermint are those ones that can be found in dry conditions or in dry soils. They can also grow as very dwarfy in nature. So you're able to say probably the productivity at that time was low and the climatic condition was also dry. Whereas if you have the other type, it's the, it's the opposite. What I realized was for the Bass Strait, 12 to 9,000 years ago, there was a lot of woodland. And the peppermint type, which is the dwarf or the dry condition eucalyptus type was actually more dominant on the island in the last 12,000 years compared to the, the tall tree, uh, symphomaritos type, which prefers a wet forest which also mirrors or agrees with the fire construction, which I did recently. I believe that the Aboriginal people used fire frequently between about 12 to 9,000 years ago to manage the landscape using frequent low intensity fire. And having the peppermint type at that time agrees with that because it's more of a open vegetation eucalyptus. So it's more of open woodland. So Aboriginal people would have used the fire to maintain the open woodland type at that time to get access easily into the woodland and to also encourage herbivore grazing in woodlands compared to having a dense eucalyptus forest where you wouldn't really find a lot of grazing herbivores. And uh, around 9,000 years ago, woodland started decreasing because sea level rose and a lot of salty materials coming in and the soil became unstable. So we had another maritacy type that actually came and we had a lot of shrubby vegetation that actually took over the island. So what we see on the island today is probably reflecting what was actually there in the past, at least in the last 12,000 years. 
on the back of all of this work that you and the rest of the team at ANU have been doing, what's the next step in the process here? Like, are you going to roll it out on Flinders Islands or Bass Strait Islands to see if there's some interregional variability or what's in the pipeline for you? Although I'm, stu- I'm studying the Bass Strait Island or Kibaran Island to be precise, but uh, in my interpretation, I try as much as possible to synthesize other nearby studies. So there is already a study from Flinders, which I always incorporate into my study to kind of create a broader reconstruction and not just Flinders. I'm also incorporating Tasmania and, uh, and the Southeast mainland to just have a broader perspective of what actually was going on in the, in the Southeast Australian landscape in relation to the Bass Strait in the past. Presumably, if you're comparing your you know, your high resolution record from Cape Barren Island to these other locations, which don't have the same degree of resolution, does that make it a little bit difficult? Or can you infer from your localised study what may be happening if somebody simply just says eucalyptus from Tasmania? I'd say it's not really difficult because uh, environments of the eastern part of Southeast Australia, and especially western part of Tasmania, is really different. It's like apple orange. Uh, so the environment, the vegetation type of the Bass Strait in general is similar to what you can find in eastern Tasmania. So it's kind of dry, sterile woodland and scrub, and which is also the case on the mainland, whereas western Tasmania is just wet rainforest. And uh, so especially when I'm looking at uh, the Bass Strait and the mainland, they have some similar trend, especially in terms of fire activity. Although the, the, the sea level issue in the Bass Strait makes the vegetation change a little bit kind of unique. But at the same time, that is similar to what you can find in the coastal part of Southeast mainland, like the coastal part of Victoria or coastal part of New South Wales, at the same time, the coastal part of Tasmania. I suppose based off of that, then, you know, if you were to go to some other place in Australia, you would need to do some similar study in order to get a good grounding in what was happening there before you actually start making assumptions about past vegetation landscapes and things like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, and that's why doing a vegetation, uh, like a survey during field work, because as you're collecting the mud or the sediment cores, you're also doing a vegetation survey, looking at what's actually growing there today, what is growing in which area, maybe the vegetation type in the swampy area and the wet areas, the ones in the rocks or the ones in the dry areas. And if any plant is flowering, you can also collect their flowers to look at what their pollen looks like. Because again, the pollen of the same eucalyptus species in Bass Strait might not look similar to the same species in Queensland. So there could be some environmental uh, influence, which is also affecting their pollen. So if you just look at a pollen record, you know, on a broader sense or a broad sense, you you know, okay, this vegetation was there at, at a point in time, then maybe changes, like you can have an idea of what the vegetation changes actually look like. So. Then it now boils down to how far you actually want to go. Like the resolution of your analysis, do you just want to look at uh, multiple pollen records and have a broader reconstruction? So for example, if I have 10 cores from Victoria and seven out of the cores is telling me that eucalyptus dominated in the last 5,000 years, why maybe two out of the cores is telling me heat or something dominated. Looking at it in a continental scale, I would say eucalyptus woodland actually dominated and not the heatland. But if you're looking at it on a very fine local scale, then you can go on to talk about the dynamics, why eucalyptus was actually present and it was absent in other sites. And you can 
We want to talk about the soil condition, the environmental, the climatic factors, maybe people modifying the landscape and so on and so forth. So it depends on the resolution or how far you actually want to go on to interpret a particular vegetation and which boils down to your research questions. What are you actually looking for? Is it a regional or continental vegetation change or a local scale vegetation dynamics? What do you think is the most exciting question yet to be answered in Australia? And what's stopping us from doing that? Because the, the mission of Kaba is to help Australians understand their culturally diverse landscape, as well as the interaction of the culturally diverse landscape with people. And that got me thinking that I think the part of conservation and management, it should also be like a vision or a mission or something. So the government as a whole, policymakers, land managers, not just traditional owners should, should also be able to talk to Kaba to say, okay, we're having this problem in this part of Australia, maybe fire issue. What do you think in terms of management and conservation? So that the government or policymakers can also count on us rather than just giving them the history, but also providing some management uh, solution or conservation solution of ecosystems and especially fire, climate, biodiversity, and so on and so forth. Mathieu Adelier, thank you very much for being with us here on the Supplementary Information and talking everything minute and polony with us. <laughs> You're welcome and thanks for having me. So I'm actually from the same university as Matthew and I hear about pollen all the time. But every time I'm kind of still amazed at how you can take something so small from such a long time ago and figure out what, what plant it was and what it belonged to. And then from that extrapolate environments and changes over time and then look at the records for people and for fire and for other things and create this kind of huge map of a landscape from the past. I just am still amazed every time. I did not come from a university that has anybody that does pollen. So all of this is incredibly fascinating to me to begin with. I think this has really opened my eyes as to, you know, actually this fine grained detail really needs to be done in order for us to say, okay, we're looking at a eucalypt, but this eucalypt is, lit, is actually from a dry land area versus one that lives in a swamp. It's phenomenal the sort of attention to detail that these guys actually get up to because that makes my head hurt. <laughs> It's a lot of it's a lot of sitting in the dark over a microscope. You do sometimes come across palynologists in a dark room, and it's just because they haven't moved for the past like five minutes. And All the, the lights, lights are turned off. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's also something here that in this research that speaks about you know what's good for the Bass Strait, where where Matthew's actually working, may not actually be appropriate for say mainland Australia or, you know, whether that's tropical, whether that's temperate, whether that's, you know, desert, the, this sort of study really, in order to get down to that fine grain detail, really needs to get rolled out in a region before you can actually start making those really high-end sort of calls as to what style and what climatic conditions were actually present when all this pollen was being deposited in your swamp. Yeah, it's actually been a bit of a trend through some of the episodes we've done so far and ones we're going to do in the future that you can't always just look at one site and say a huge history for the whole of Australia. You need to go to each individual location and find the history that's there. And it's so important to do that base level research that um, Matthew and others are doing to kind of get to that level of detail that we need in each region. Hey 
there, Subinfo Podsters. After listening to all that pollen potential, were you left pondering a plentitude of perplexing problems? Perfect. Now is precisely the point to pose your prickly puzzlers to us. To do this, you can simply tweet your questions to us using our Twitter handle at SupInfoPod. Or you can click on the links in the episode description that will take you to the Epic Australia website. Click on the episode you're interested in, scroll all the way to the bottom and click on the survey. We have some really cool SUP Info merchandise for those people whose questions feature in our podcast. These include keep cups, magnets and badges. So get out there, stick your thinking caps on and tweet us your questions, please. We're dying to hear from you. The Kaba team recognises that all our activities take place on Indigenous land. We acknowledge that Australia is an exceptional country with a unique cultural heritage and biodiversity that has been under the care of Indigenous Australians for millennia. This is Aboriginal land. It always was and it always will be. And we thank those communities who partner with us in our research. For more information about Matthew and the work that he's doing with the rest of the PaleoWorks team at the ANU, you can check out the links to his socials in the episode description. While you're there, you can also click on the link to epicaustralia.org.au to check out other Carbar research stories, as well as a transcript from today's episode and additional resources, including a bio from today's guest. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to supplementary information wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. You better hope you've got your sea legs for our next episode as we cruise our way through the tropical islands of Indonesia, following in the footsteps of a very particular possum and a tale of genetics that can help us understand the past movements of people. So it's cheerio from me. And goodbye from me. And until you download us again, stay safe. Catch you later. Auf Wiedersehen. The pollen and the passion. Gotta keep, do, do, do. Gotta keep that one in now. <laughs>